Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to bring you Robert Green. He joined us a few years ago in 2011 to talk about his book, The 48 Laws of Power. He's a best-selling author, and he's written The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law with 50 Cent, and he is now out with a book called Mastery. All of the subjects he writes about so eloquently have been of interest to me in my life. But most recently, I've been very interested in his book on seduction for some reason. It's come in very, very strong. And I had no idea when I invited Robert to come on the show and talk about his book, Seduction, that he had come out with a book that's most seductive to me about one of my other favorite subjects that's dear to my heart and experience on mastery. So I am formally admitting I am seduced. (laughs) I have been seduced by the subject of mastery, the experience of mastery and working with masters and being around them as a very young child all through my life. And I want you to know a little bit more about Robert. First of all, the man has had at least 80 jobs in his life. He has a cat named Brutus. And for those of you that are worried, caveat emptor. <laughs> Robert has a beloved following, but also people that are very afraid of him and his works that sometimes elicit controversy because Robert writes about and talks about things that are very wise and have historical precedent. And yet, for many of us, there are some tough aspects of human nature that we don't want to deal with that Robert writes about extensively. And so I'm really honored to have him here today. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome in Robert Green to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning to you, Kim. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. My pleasure. You write that Leonardo da Vinci says, poor is the apprentice that does not surpass his master. Why is that an important quote to you? In the book, Mastery, I'm trying to debunk the whole notion of genius and talent that we've inherited from hundreds of years of misconceptions, romantic myths about genius. And I want to show you, in a rigorous, maybe somewhat scientific manner, the process that leads a person to mastery. And I can break it down and show that this is something that Albert Einstein went through, and he claims that I'm not a genius. He says it over and over again. I just worked very hard, and it's the same process of a Mozart or a da Vinci. Part of this process involves finding a mentor, a master, who can initiate you into the secrets, into the power, into the skills that you need for this particular craft. It's a relationship, a concept that has deep, deep, deep roots in our history and in human nature going back millions of years when our earliest ancestors learned how to fashion a tool by watching another person who has been doing it for 10, 20 years. And it was a relationship that was codified in the actual apprenticeship system of the Middle Ages. Basically what it means is by learning from a person in real time, not virtually, not on Facebook, not through email, but in the flesh, you're able to absorb not only things that they tell you about their craft, but also their energy, their spirit, their way of thinking, things that can't really even be put into words. And I have many examples of this. But part of that process involves not being this sort of slavish apprentice admiring this godlike figure who's teaching you all the secrets. In the back of your mind, you know at some point you want to surpass this person. You want to be a master yourself. There's so many people out there who just learn the rules in their field, how to be good and proficient at it, and then they settle into that position because it's comfortable and easier that way. Masters are people that don't settle into that kind of comfort zone. They're ambitious. They want to master their field. They enjoy the rush that comes from having that intuitive feel for what's going to happen a kind of creative energy that comes through years of working on the process. And so your goal in the end is to surpass this master. I have a quote in there, a Spanish proverb, to the master goes the knife. And it means in fencing, eventually you get so good that the young pupil will actually cut the teacher with his sword. And that's where you want to be. You don't want to be too timid and too intimidated by the process and by the master himself. 
So that's what the quote is, a kind of a long-winded way of explaining it. I'm trying to say that there's a sort of fearlessness involved in becoming a master, and that's this is part of it. Now, because I trained as a young girl with a master, Pancho Segura, and actually didn't know until my two years was up with him that I was training with a master, in the years to come, no matter what teacher I had, they all pale compared to him. Tell me, I don't know who Pancho Segura is. Pancho Segura was a world tennis champion. That's what I thought. And he's from Ecuador. He's about 90 or 91 now. But he had, in his vibration, in his spirit, a way of transmitting to you as his student in a way that was oral, energetic. He could get you to do stuff. He taught me the secrets of the game. Yeah. And it was so powerful to be in the presence of somebody at that level. And it was imbued in me very young, viscerally. And consequently, over many, many years, I used to go and watch and study music masters on stage. Their presence, their energy, how they do what they do, the level of their craft, not just their singing or playing the instrument. So it's always been an area of interest. However, I'm wondering in part of your translation about eventually how the student or the apprentice is going to have to cut the master, I don't know if that's a particular paradigm translation on your end, if you think it's the ultimate thing that happens, if it's a prescription, or is it limited to certain cultures? Would the Chinese and Japanese agree with you about that? um, Most definitely. I'm not an expert on Asian culture, so I have to qualify that. Right. But I know fairly extensively certain aspects of Japanese culture, particularly as it pertains to Zen Buddhism, something I practice in meditation, but I also am aware of it in in other areas like sword fighting and archery and flower arrangement. There's a deep, deep tradition of eventually the master disappears and you've internalized that there's the famous quote of, if you meet the Buddha at the crossroads, you must kill him. Buddhism is not a religion in which you are slavishly praying to some almighty God. It's something that you internalize, and eventually you're getting rid of the Buddha himself and becoming that figure. So over and over again, there's this theme in all of the different areas I mentioned where the student surpasses the master, and it's a glorious moment, and the master revels in it. And I tell the story in Mastery of one of the great Zen masters, somebody I deeply admire from the 18th century, named Hakuin, and the story with his master and how he eventually received enlightenment from him and then went on to become perhaps the greatest Zen master in history. And his master that had initiated him said that, you are going to surpass me one day. You are going to revive Zen Buddhism. It's a spiritual process, if you will, And you're never going to get to that point of mastering something or of being enlightened if you don't have that attitude that you yourself are worthy of being a master, that there's something great within you. If you are always feeling like this person is so great, I could never achieve it, it's going to keep you down forever. All of the great masters have a little bit of a cheekiness to them. It's what made Pancho Segura a great tennis player. He was wild. I mean, he would literally yell at me on the court and he'd go, Come on, my little prima donna, can you do anything? Oh, I don't think you can do anything against Pancho. Oh, you poor thing, I did a drop shot. I mean, he would drive me insane. He was constantly chiding me like that. Oh, my prima donna, she can't really move from right to left or up and back and whatever. But he was, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's what made him become a great tennis player. You know, I have many examples in the book. I use the story of the great pianist Glenn Gould, kind of a hero of mine, perhaps the greatest pianist of the modern era maybe ever lived. And he had a magnificent master who taught him practically everything he knew. But the problem with pianists, the problem with a tennis player in any area is if you become so dazzled by the teacher, you never develop your own style. You just become an imitation of that person. And the game is to absorb their energy, to learn their lessons, to learn the incredible things they have to impart. And then at a certain point, allow your confidence to take over and so that you can develop your own style because you can't be a master if you're just imitating somebody else. I make the point in the book... It's the most important point of the book that there's something unique about everybody, physiologically, genetically, neurologically, and a master is a person who brings out that uniqueness in their work. They're one of a kind. 
And so you're going to bring that out in your work, and you can't do that if you're simply imitating the masters around you. When you talk about the mentor-protege dynamic, another one of my favorite topics, and has eluded many, many people, and you really are quite frank about that. Now, I've both been a mentor and a protege, right? I was a protege of Pancho Segura, who wasn't my mentor, obviously, was my master. But I've had mentors who I noticed in your writing the very dynamic you describe. They were fine as long as I was under their thumb, but they were not fine for me to go beyond even them or where I was. It's like a tacit understanding. You do not surpass the mentor. Yes. I would like you to talk about this because this is so astute what you wrote about. Really, you kind of blew the cover on this whole thing. But I want to preface it by also saying to you this, Robert. I believe, even if I am innocent in my belief, that a mentor-protege dynamic in relationship does not have to be the way a lot of times the dynamic happens. I'm up for that being transformed, that paradigm that you notice this universal dynamic with. So please go ahead and talk about that. It's a complicated subject, and I devote a long chapter to it. But essentially, the mentor relationship is not the same as a student-teacher relationship because it's one-on-one, generally, and it's emotional. So a mentor decides to devote his or her time to helping you because they are almost seeing in you like a son or daughter they never had. They enjoy the process of imparting their wisdom their knowledge, their experience to someone who's younger. There's also maybe a little bit of self-interest involved in that person will now be able to do some of the grunt work for them and can help alleviate some of the burdens that they're having and save them some time. And for the younger person, you generally choose a mentor whom you admire. It's a parent-like figure, the father or the mother. And so there's an emotional component that has to be there. Otherwise, there won't be that dynamic. There won't be that kind of current going between the two of you. It's actually in every mentor relationship you're going to find that. The problem is that there are two kinds of mentors, just as you find different kinds of parents. There's the kind of mentor parent who is very loving and generous and wants to help the younger person and develop them and then step aside and let them go their own path. You will find that, and I detail examples of it. I have a contemporary example that I like of a woman who I interviewed for the book who's a master, Yoki Matsuoka. Her field was electrical engineering robotics, and she found the ultimate mentor, Rodney Brooks, at MIT, the robotics lab there, and he was somebody who eventually let her go her own way. But more often than not, you're going to find the bad parent type, the meddling over-controlling, suffocating type father figure that wants to keep you down. They envy your youth. They envy the fact that you're 23, 24, whatever. You have your whole future ahead of you. They might secretly envy that, I should say. And they also want to keep you tied to them because you now are helping them out. There's that self-interest element involved. They become perhaps addicted or dependent on some of the work that you provide them. On and on, there are reasons for it, but they can easily morph into that bad parent figure. And they resent you showing any flashes of independence. They want to keep you down. And the way they do that can be very subtle and very psychological. And you have to be aware of that. And I give more examples of that bad type of dynamic, the scientist Michael Faraday, Sigmund Freud, and Carl Jung, etc. And the only way to overcome this is to be aware of it as it happens and to take the mentality that this person is a tool for you. You are using them to gain experience and knowledge And at a certain point, you have to discard that tool. You have to use that emotional part of the relationship, but at some point you have to cut it off and not be the dependent, slavish, adoring protege. Part of what you're talking about, even though it's wise and you've caught this dynamic, you've obviously isolated and seen this dynamic, and I have too, but... Isn't that the dark side of the mentor-protege dynamic rather than the high-ended side? In other words, why does a mentor, for example, have to be viewed as a tool? It's not just a tool. There's also... uh, I know, but you just got done saying it, so that's why I just wanted to bring it up. 
I'm giving you a strategy. Right. You're facing, it's almost like a form of abuse, this type of mentor. Now, I'm not saying that this is most often what happens. Generally, a mentor, like many humans, is a combination. They have a good side and they have a bad side. But then you'll find occasionally the mentor that is very controlling and very much resent you're showing any kind of independence. I'm giving you a strategy for overcoming that because what's happened is in those two or three or four years that you've been working with this person, you admire them greatly and you've internalized some of their criticisms and it can be difficult for you to cut the ties or to see them in a slightly negative light, and then it becomes a very destructive relationship and it holds you back. I'm giving you a way to get out of that. I'm trying to tell you, it's almost like in the book, The Art of Seduction, where you're fallen in love with someone and they no longer love you, and it's clear. And how do you fall out of love? Uh, it's a theme that goes back to Ovid. I bring it up because it's very difficult. Words won't tell you. I could say, well, you do this, do that, and it won't matter. So I give you some strategies, for instance, to remember all the times that person was mean to you, to remember the times that you almost sort of came to hate them, and to focus on the ugly things that they did so that you can kind of neutralize that emotional connection that has you enslaved. It's the same thing with the mentor. I'm trying to give you a way to break that spell we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Declaration of a National and International Water Crisis is a declaration about water that comes directly from snowmelt and rainfall. It has nothing to do with the water that exists below your feet, underground, into faulted structures all over the world. I want you to know that there is an unlimited supply of available fresh water everywhere on earth, including the deserts. For over 100 years, teams of people have been locating water for private people. And the reason you haven't heard of it is that it is not part of the mainstream orthodoxy of geology that's taught at universities. When you think about people and animals in developing nations having to walk miles to bring back a bucket of water, I want you to know that that is an unacceptable atrocity. Nobody should have to go through that. I've made a commitment to make water available to sophisticated investors and to people in need across the world and to make commercial applications available for water in the United States and abroad. There's only a water crisis as it relates to snowmelt and rainfall not having to do with the third source of water, which is below our feet. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a sophisticated investor or a farmer that would be interested in having your own water supply that is independent of the aquifers, feel free to call. It's rainmaking time. The good news is that there's plenty of water everywhere for anybody and any animal on planet Earth that needs it. Thank you very much. And back to the show. Have you had a mentor, Robert? Have I been mentored or have I been a mentor? Both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what has been your experience in having a mentor? When you had a mentor, did you know at the time that person was your mentor? Yes and no. I mean, as a writer, I've not really had a mentor because writing is sort of a lonely profession and it's not often that you'll find that. But when I did my first three books... I worked with a producer for my book, and he sort of discovered me and helped me sell my first book, etc. And he was my mentor for the publishing side of the business, and he was fantastic, and I learned an awful lot from him. And he fits the paradigm of the good and the bad, which I think most people are. You know, there was a side of him that he would recognize that could be difficult and I had to learn how to manage that, and I had to learn how to control my emotions, I had to learn how to see what he taught that is valuable and what he's teaching that isn't right or that I shouldn't pay attention to. It was a difficult process, but there was many amazing things about him. So the idea thing that you want is to keep your eyes open and be aware and nuanced to see the good and the bad in that person who's mentoring you. The tendency is to do one or two things. is 
they're just absolutely God and I'm miserable and everything they say is brilliant, or this person, I hate their guts, I, I never want to see them again. Those are both the wrong kinds of attitudes that you're going to have because that's probably not the truth. And then, you know, I've been a mentor to a young man who's now very successful. I tell people that someday he's probably going to surpass the master, which is fine with me. Ryan Holiday, he did my research and was basically my assistant for several years, and he's now a published writer who's very successful. He gets invited to more public speaking engagements than I do, and I'm very happy with it. I hope I'm one of the positive mentors, but I'm very aware of the emotions that can, you can get caught up in, the envy and all those other things. That's very honest of you to share that. I thought it would be important to ask you. Now, for the male-female mentor-protege dynamic, what I have noticed out there is that there's usually an attraction, whether it's a power attraction, a sexual attraction, or a mix of everything, emotional, sexual, creative, whatever. In the male-female dynamic, I've seen more men be willing to mentor women and less men willing to mentor boys or younger men. Is that correct or incorrect in your experience? I don't know. It depends on the field, um, and it depends on the person. I give, in the book, many examples of men mentoring other men. By way of this apprenticeship, or you're just talking about in general? You know, there's certainly men who would prefer to be mentoring a woman, and I think one, one should be careful of something like that, because then it is something, power game or a sexual game that's being played both. I call it more a power exchange but it's where they can't have the sex, but it gets transmuted. Do you know what I'm saying? And it gets transformed into this other dynamic. Uh-huh. Have you noticed that ever? Yeah, certainly. And I would caution, I mean, that could work as a positive, but it could also be something very dangerous. That's the whole interesting thing about this relationship is it has to have that emotional component. Because not everything that happens in life is verbal and something that we can put down in an instruction manual. There are things that are nonverbal. There's an energy. Yeah, like most things. What's that? <laughs> like most things, right? Most things. There's an energy that passes between people. We're animals. Well, we are animals. But when you're open to someone, you learn better. When you feel you admire them, you want to hear them, You're going to absorb things as opposed to if you're not having that kind of connection. So you have to choose a mentor where you will open yourself up and you won't be defensive and resistant and saying everything that they tell you, oh, that's ridiculous. You'll never learn. You have to be humble. I call it a kind of submission to this person. They are wiser than you. They are more experienced. You open your mind and your heart up and you allow them to initiate you into certain things. So there has to be that kind of emotional connection circuit passing between both of you. When it's a man and a woman, and it's an older man and a younger woman, there's a danger that mixed in with that is a strong sexual component on both sides. So I would put some red flags up in something like that, unless the older man is someone who you can completely trust or, or you are somebody who's very strong and confident and can handle this kind of possible mixing of emotions. Can we talk a little bit about Michael Faraday and his mentor, Davi, and why you selected Michael Faraday to talk about this example? Well, I'm always interested in the most primal example I can find that's almost like a a mythic-type icon of something. And to me, this is the iconic, most primal mythic example of the mentor-protege-type relationship. And the reason is that Michael Faraday, who later became perhaps the greatest experimental scientist maybe ever, but at least certainly in the 19th century, Um, was this young man who was born into total poverty in England at the end of the 18th century. father is a blacksmith, no education. He's just like a street urchin doing favors for people in the streets of London. And he wanders into a bookstore one day, and he's amazed by these books. And he's so charming and so curious that the man who runs the bookshop 
decides to hire him as an apprentice. Now suddenly being around all of these books, he realizes he wants to be a scientist. That's his, what I call his life's task. He's drawn to the subjects of chemistry and electricity in a way you couldn't explain rationally. But a person who's 12 years old, who has no education, who comes from poverty, has absolutely zero chance of becoming a scientist in 19th century England. I mean zero, because you can only become a scientist in England if you have access to a laboratory, and you can only have access to a laboratory if you went to Cambridge or Oxford or Edinburgh and graduated with stellar records In other words, it was impossible for someone from his social class. So he educated himself by reading books, by going through this intensive self-education process, attending lectures and writing copious notes, and he realized at some point he will never make it in this world unless he finds a mentor. That mentor will give him access to laboratories. It becomes this search for how could he find this person and how could he ever get that kind of relationship without having gone to any of these universities. And I demonstrate through sheer willpower, through intense strategizing, a lot of labor, and a little bit of luck. He meets the ultimate mentor, Humphrey Davy, a man who also is probably the only example of someone like Michael Faraday. He himself... Humphrey Davy also came from a poor background and overcame all of these obstacles. He managed to impress this man and with a little bit of luck was able to become his apprentice. And through that relationship and observing this incredibly brilliant chemist in action, he absorbed all of these lessons firsthand that completely made up for his lack of having attended a real university. Watching this man day in, day out, conducting these experiments, seeing his, how he thinks, seeing how his thought patterns were, not just the obvious stuff, but how creative Humphrey Davy was in elaborating an experiment to prove something. Suddenly, this street urchin with no education becomes this incredibly brilliant experimental scientist. But Humphrey Davy is one of those bad mentors that we mentioned, one of those bad parent figures who wants to keep this young man under his thumb, wants to keep him almost his slave. When he goes on a fishing trip, he has Faraday find him bait for his fishing trips, even though Faraday's now in his 20s and quite an accomplished chemist and scientist himself. And so eventually Michael Faraday has a bit of a despair. He's getting close to 30 Will he be this apprentice the rest of his life? He decides to rebel, and he decides to conduct an experiment on his own that will go against what Humphrey David would want him to do, and it becomes the turning point in his career. So everything in that story of Michael Faraday demonstrates all that I've talked about, the absolute necessity of the relationship, what you can gain from it, the emotional component, and that moment when you have to rebel and stick the knife in the master. So it's the most iconic mentor story I could find. Earlier in my tennis career, I had heard about the relationship between Jimmy Connors and Pancho Segura. Uh And I don't know all the detail, but it feels like a complete demarcation of self. Jimmy Connors just came out with his new book, and I hope to interview him later this year. Uh It's fascinating, but it's very true what you're talking about. One of the things you said about developing mastery skills is that time is a magic ingredient. Yeah. And I love the way you describe the society we're living in now, where people think they have to have everything now, and they're all connected into all their devices, and everything is becoming globalized. And so this whole thing of taking the time to develop is less attractive to people because they're in the, I want it yesterday, I have it now, I want everything now. There's this now seduction, huge, yeah. which you write about. Talk a little bit about time and the magic. Why you call it the magic ingredient and where did you come up with the 10-year baseline for developing skills in the area of mastery? It's a, an elaborate philosophy that I'm trying to initiate the reader in, but Essentially, what I'm saying is we evolved over the course of millions of years. Our brain evolved in a certain way. The human brain developed to its current actual size and configuration 150,000 years ago. It's pretty much the same brain 
that's been around for 150,000 years. And this brain has a pattern to it, certain ways that it works, certain strengths and weaknesses that no matter of technology, that no app, nothing is going to short-circuit it. Nothing is going to make you overcome or change that brain that took so many millions of years to evolve. And the, the strength of the human brain is that if you spend time learning something, observing something, whatever it is, slowly over the course of one year, two years, three years, you're going to see deeper and deeper aspects of the reality of what you're looking at. For instance, if you're learning to play the piano, that's your great love in life. That first day that you sit down at the piano to learn, you have no idea what this instrument is. You know, you can see the keyboard, you can see the notes, but it's sort of intimidating. It's foreign to you. After one year, it's a little bit different. The keyboard is, is, doesn't seem the same. You're able to look at a piece of music differently. You're able to play a little better. After eight years, ten years, that keyboard is now something that's inside your head. You don't have to even look at your fingers anymore. You have a feel for everything. You have a feel for the piece of music that you're playing. Over the course of those years, we could chart how more and deeply and deeply and deeply you understand the actual essence of music, the spiritual essence of music, the things that can't be put into words. You cannot say after there's a shortcut for that. We live in a culture that loves the shortcut. Oh, here's something that's going to make what would take 10 years in four years. There's no way playing the piano that you can do that. You can't do that playing chess. You can't do that in carpentry. You can't do that as a hacker, whatever. You have to go through the time and have to go through the process. The good news or the glad tidings to be religious here is that anybody who goes through that process of time will deepen their knowledge and will reach levels of creativity and mastery. And that's where the 10,000-hour rule is so amazing. It's not my rule. There was a great study came in the 1990s by a man named Anders Ericsson. He was studying excellence in different fields. And in tracking great chess players, grandmasters in chess, and great musicians, he discovered that somewhere near that magical mark of 10,000 hours of practice and study, intense practice and study of a subject, that suddenly the brain elevated to a higher level. And you could see this, give or take 500 hours, is in the window. Something changes in the brain, a change, a click that goes on, and now a person is thinking on this higher level. You can roughly translate that if you practice hard at something to 10 years. It could be less, a little bit less. If you're practicing 10 hours a day and you're fanatic, it can be a little bit more if you're not so fanatic. But more or less, it's about a 10-year window. This is what will happen to you if you have the patience. But so many people neutralize, negate the one strength that you were given in, in this brain that you inherited that developed over so many hundreds of thousands of years. You negate it through your impatience. People want to believe that there are shortcuts. They want to believe that there's magic out there. They want to believe that through their iPhone, they can circumvent all the effort involved or they believe that being continually distracted, multitasking on every level, oh, that doesn't matter because we live in a new age and all the old rules are thrown out because I've got this great piece of technology. It's just rubbish. It's just nonsense. And it's stupidity of the highest order. And I'm saying in the book that I'm afraid that in 20 years, if people keep wallowing this nonsense, that bridges are going to be falling down around us. Buildings won't stand up. Things will be so badly built because people are so distracted and have not mastered their field. It's going to actually be physically dangerous to walk outside your house. This is the golden rule of mastery. You either submit to this time element with patience and devotion and love for what you're doing, and you're on your way to mastery, or you give in to that animal nature in us that's impatient, that doesn't want to do things, that wants things easy, and you're lost. You'll never make it. So, Robert, I know you know this, but not everybody has an aspiration to be a master or to have mastery in something that they're passionate and interested in. So the niche is more rare, not just because it's something that was groomed from the past and antiquity, but it's never been really something that the mass populace has had a great interest in, per se, in terms of a state of becoming. 
I've always been interested in mastery, both in communication and bringing people together and putting things together and getting things to happen. But not everybody's interested in acquiring a level of mastery at something. I wonder if your book will bring a renaissance to this training and working with a master, it's bringing it back, right? Because in a way, it's obscure. It's a very small niche of people that even care. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I both agree and disagree. It is going back a little bit to the past, but it's also very modern. And I show that there are disadvantages in our time, which is the level of distraction and the impatience that we face in the belief that everything should be as easy as a click but we also have advantages. The amount of information at our disposal, what would take Da Vinci 10 years to accumulate, we can get in a matter of seconds. If you're disciplined, you know how to use the Internet. It can be a fantastic tool for mastery. So there are advantages. But I don't know how many people in the world are excited by it. I don't have statistics. I don't think anybody could. But I have this belief and this attitude that deep down inside, everybody wants something similar to this experience. I feel that what makes most people depressed as they get older, but they're not aware of it, is the fact that they're not realizing their potential. They knew when they were younger that they had something in them. I don't know how many people, but a lot of people feel this. They had something in them that could be great. You know, it could be a writer, a musician, a business person, whatever. They had dreams. And as they get their 30s and 40s, it becomes apparent that they're not going to realize their dreams because of their work habits or whatever. They don't want to face that reality, so they hide, they blame other people, they get in marital thoughts, they do this, that, or the other. But underneath it all is this sense of waste, and it makes people depressed. And you know that there's something unique about you that you haven't cultivated. So... I believe almost everybody shares that level of aspiration and that frustration when they don't get there. And it's not like you have to aim to become Albert Einstein. Let's not set the bar that high where these are the only masters. I had an interview last year when the book came out for the New York Times, and I made it clear that the person who worked on our deck, did the tile work on my patio, is a master. He's a master craftsman who spent years studying carpentry in Mexico. He's been doing it now for 20 years. He is a master. There are masters on the high, high level of an Einstein, but there are masters when you go to the hospital and you have a particular doctor who has this incredible sense of knowing what to prescribe or has a feel for it, or scientists who have it, but also athletes, people who aren't educated. The Freddie Roach in my book, The Boxing Trainer, it doesn't have to be the Einsteins of the world, but the feeling that you are going towards realizing your potential, that you're heading in that direction, that you're not wasting your time, I believe is something that almost all of us share, and I want you to at least begin this process and head in that direction. Very astute, eloquently put. I want to talk about how in your book on page 25, you said many of the greatest masters in history have confessed to experiencing some kind of force or voice or sense of destiny that has guided them forward. Albert Einstein talked of a kind of inner voice that shaped the direction of his speculations, and all of these are variations on what Leonardo da Vinci experienced with his own sense of fate. How did you find that out? <laughs> You're well, good at research, too. <laughs> some of it, you know, you have to read between the lines. I did find a, an example where Einstein discussed this. It was sort of hard to find. Da Vinci was obsessed with the idea of fate, not just in a human sense, but in a scientific sense of how that plant seed turns into a plant and how it's sort of destined to go through this process just as a baby in the womb has this process that it goes through and develops. Every thought of his resonated with this sense that there's a force in nature that determines so many things. And he, almost in a Faustian way, wanted to be the one that figured out this natural force that governs everything in the world, including one's own fate and one's own decisions. And so 
in looking at a lot of great people in history, it becomes clear that they have this feeling of something guiding them. And it can be totally bogus. They could be totally wrong. I don't know, and I don't really care. Who knows if there is such a force out there? But it has a self-fulfilling dynamic. It makes them become what they believe they should become. Napoleon Bonaparte, whom I wrote about in another book, had his star. He called it his star. It was guiding him wherever he went, and he felt connected to it. And Socrates had his daemon, his little voice inside of him that mostly told him what he shouldn't do. It was like a negative voice. And Goethe talked about his daemon and what it did for him. It's such a common theme. Clearly, something is there. Some people experience it as a voice inside their head that's directing them. Others, it's a feeling. Others will personify it as actually something spiritual out there in the world. But it's a feeling like you are connected to something and you're going to fulfill it. I have my own explanation for it, which you can believe or not believe. When you're very young, you become aware of that uniqueness that I mentioned earlier, and you're drawn to certain things. And I give examples in the book of great masters who, when they're four or five years old, they're drawn to this particular thing that sort of indicates what they're going to become. And it's like a voice inside of you saying, this is what you should do, this is what you should follow, you should be a writer, you should be in science, you should be a dancer or an athlete. It's not that obvious, it's never like a career, like I'm saying. It's more a feeling that you should be involved in something visual or auditory or physical. And that voice for masters is so clear that as they get older, they keep hearing it. And it's almost like fate or destiny or a star or a daemon. And for most of us others, we stop hearing that voice as we listen to parents and teachers and friends telling us this is cool, this isn't cool, etc. We don't hear that anymore. We have no connection to our destiny or our fate or what we were meant to accomplish. Actually, what separates a master from others are the fact that they hear this voice and they're connected to the sense of destiny and it kind of guides them for many, many years. I wanted you to share something about Martha Graham. You wrote about this decision that she made to train and to make the most out of her youthful energy. I thought that was so interesting. Can you share a little bit about Martha Graham? She's a great, great master, invented a whole form of modern dance, and she's an amazing story. She discovered in, in her late teens that she had a great love of theater, and then one evening she goes to a dance performance with her father in Los Angeles, and she's mesmerized by the dance. And suddenly she realizes she wants to become a dancer. So she apprentices with a dance troupe in Los Angeles that does a kind of freer form of dance, more like in the Isadora Duncan School of Dancing. So she apprentices there, and she loves it, and she learns a lot. And then she goes to New York, trained in this system of dancing. She's now going to instruct people as part of the system that she learned in Los Angeles. In order to make money in New York in the 1920s, she has to do these classes, and she has to work as a dancer on Broadway. And she hates it. It's soul-destroying, just the routine of it, the kind of commercialism. It's just a job. And so she's starting to get a little bit depressed because she didn't start off in dance at an extremely young age, and dancers don't last that long. And at one point, the people who instructed her in Los Angeles give her an ultimatum, saying, if you want to keep teaching our system here in New York, you have to pay us this money or you have to completely stop teaching our method. And she doesn't have money. She is relatively poor. She could try to scrape it together, but she's sick of being this kind of person that has to teach this method she doesn't believe anymore and doing these jobs. So she decides on something extremely bold. She says, all right, I won't teach your method anymore, which basically means she can't teach anymore. And she decides to quit her Broadway jobs. She's going to now devise her own school, her own method with virtually no savings in a difficult time in history, etc. Incredibly bold thing to do. And so she has to learn how to get by with absolutely zero money. And she has slowly elaborates a method of her own. She gets a couple of pupils who she now initiates into this different style of dance, which gives her a small amount of income. 
And as the years go by, three or four years, the school gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. She's now able to start performing, and she becomes insanely successful because she creates a whole new genre of dance. But this was a woman of incredible integrity. She wasn't going to compromise. She wasn't going to do something just to make money. She wanted to actually create an art form that came from somewhere deep within her. And she said that the main impediment was that crossroads she faced where is it about money or is it about what I want to build in life? Making that decision was so important because it was almost a spiritual battle. She learned to not worry about money. The money will come. If she does what is right, if she creates her own school that's rigorous and new, something will happen. By not worrying about money, she made herself independent. She learned how to eat with 10 cents a day in her pocket. She became very resourceful, and she said the problem young people have is they don't develop that resourcefulness. They're too afraid to take that leap, and when you're young, you have the ability and the patience to put up with poverty and to put up with having to scrape by. It's a skill that you can develop, and she noticed this as she became so successful in the 1950s and 60s that a lot of the young people now trying to become dancers, they were also pampered, and they wanted everything given to them. And it's actually better if you learn to put yourself through that sort of tough school and not become so dependent on a paycheck early in your life. I hate to use the word follow your dreams. It's such a cliche. But in the end, you're going to be far more successful if you follow the Martha Graham path than if she had decided, oh, I'll just teach this method that I learned just to get by for the rest of my life. That was such a beautiful example. I mean, and so important, particularly for youth today. Obviously, you know that. You wrote about it. It was just a great example. Now, I know that you're considered very controversial. I mean, even Fidel Castro has paid attention to your books. Yeah. But the I Ching is an instructive book, and that's extremely cunning and wise, right? But for the modern day, there's a lot that people can chew on with your books. There's a chapter called Suffer Fools Gladly. Uh-huh. I'd like you to talk about this because this is so pertinent. On page 159, you talked about Goethe. If you could talk a little bit about what that means, Suffer Fools Gladly, and why that's relevant. Well, it comes in a chapter about what I call social intelligence. The chapter is entitled See People As They Are. You might wonder, what's that have to do with mastery? Well, I'm trying to tell you that you can spend those 10,000 hours and you can become technically brilliant at your craft or any field, but you don't know how to deal with people. You're insensitive to them or you're not paying attention to them or you have no political sense and you're offending people left, right, and center. It's going to neutralize all the talent that you have. And I may give an example of this brilliant doctor in the 19th century named Semmelweis who has a great discovery who will make him one of the greatest doctors in history. But he's so bad with people, he offends everybody that crosses his path, that it ruins his life, and he ends up dying virtually penniless in his 40s. So you have to learn how to deal with people and be socially adept. And actually, the brain, there's not like compartments in our brain where there's an intellectual compartment and a social compartment. Our brains are completely interconnected. And being sensitive to people and attuned to what makes them an individual is the same sensitivity that makes you attuned to what you're studying. It's the same focus level, attention to detail. So they're all interconnected. And one of the things in that social intelligence chapter is how you deal with fools. might seem a little bit irrelevant there, but in fact, we're always continually surrounded by fools wherever <laughs> we go. They're, they're, they're everywhere. And I tried to find fools in the following way. They're people that don't have a sense of proportion. What should be important isn't something that they value. But what should be unimportant and petty and banal is what they elevate into something just so insanely important. They have no scale of values. It's all out of whack. With Goethe, that story, he was in an aristocratic court, and all the people cared about was who said hello to whom and whether they gave the proper deference to the king and what this person was wearing and what she didn't say and how impolite. In other words, things that really shouldn't matter at all. And, and what happens with fools is that they tend to infect you with their energy and they tend to 
destroy your own sense of values and you begin to start becoming petty and banal like they are. You lower yourself to their level. And so the strategy that I'm saying is it's inevitable. They're always around you everywhere you go. And the best strategy is to suffer them gladly. It's an expression from the Bible. You don't try to change them. That's the worst thing you can do. You don't necessarily try to run away from them because you can't run away from them. They're everywhere. You just laugh. You accept their presence. You smile at them. You learn from them what you don't want to become. But you have a kind of a light approach. If you get too caught up with their drama and too upset, if you're responding to all of their posts on some thread on the Internet and you get so wrapped up in their stupidity, you become stupid in trying to respond to them. It's like flypaper. <laughs> flypaper. But the other thing I say in there, to give a little dose of humanity to this, is that you probably have a touch of the fool in yourself, and I do and everybody does. We all can understand those moments where we lose a sense of proportion, and suddenly, because we didn't get you know, the great service on the airplane, we suddenly get all upset, whereas, well, really, what does that matter in the end? We all have that in us, so in acknowledging it, you can be a little more tolerant to these, these people who are more, maybe more foolish than you. It's just a strategy for not letting them bring you down and infect your life. The Von Sternberg and Janning story made me laugh. <laughs> Please share a little of that, because I think the audience would find just a lot of love. Well, it's it. just that Von Sternberg was a great director. He, he came from Austria. He, he was a silent film director in Germany. His big claim to fame, though, was coming to Hollywood and discovering Marlena Dietrich. He actually discovered her prior to coming to Hollywood, but he did a series of films with Marlena Dietrich that are extremely famous. You know, actors could definitely be... There are a lot of fools among actors. <laughs> Uh, because their sense of ego makes it that they have no sense of what's really important, which is to make a great film. All they care about is how they look. As long as they look good, the lighting is right, and they can shine, who cares about the rest of the film? And there are a lot of actors like that. And there was this one actor who was the biggest of them all in that sense, and that was Emil Yawnings. This is a film called Blue Angel, which you might have heard of. Emil Yawnings would destroy directors. He ate them alive because he was so difficult and so impossible, and everything had to be on his terms. Well, von Sternberg was a brilliant psychologist and strategist, and his whole thing was, I don't care. I'm not going to get emotionally caught up in this guy's nonsense. I'm just going to stay calm. I'm going to let him do his things, but he's not going to affect the actual movie. That's all that matters is the actual movie. So... When Emil Yawnings would get all upset that Marlena Dietrich was getting all of the attention and he wasn't, von Sternberg would sit in his makeup room and listen to him patiently and say, yes, 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 I understand, of course, it's terrible. <laughs> um, but then when Yawnings would throw a tantrum and not appear on the set, von Sternberg would send back the signal that he was now suddenly preferring Marlena Dietrich and that he didn't care about Emil Yawnings anymore and that you know, Marlena was now his favorite. And suddenly that would make Yawnings very concerned, and he would now come back on the set. <laughs> he tricked him in, with, through reverse psychology over and over again and refused to get caught up in the petty games, and he completely outmaneuvered him. And in the end, Yawnings delivered his most famous performance, the one that we all know him from, from that movie as The Professor, I can go on more deeply, but von Sterberg was a great psychologist. Yeah, great story. How has the reception been for your book on mastery in your experience right now? Mostly very positive. It's been out now for several months, and I'm getting feedback from people who have found the book extremely helpful. And I've been giving talks about it, etc. You know, there's always those who believe that, uh, you know, I, some of the criticisms come from journalists. I find journalists to be of a different species. Uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about people with podcasts and bloggers. Oh, you covered yourself well there. Keep going. <laughs> They're just snarky, cynical people. Yeah. So they'll say, well, Da Vinci didn't have a book for mastery. I mean, you're either born that way or not. How can a book help you? Blah, 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 blah. Well, then, you know, like, why write any book on anything, you know, if people just have to do what they do? Certainly, having something that makes you more aware and conscious of the process and demystifying it, I believe, would have value. But no, 
Da Vinci doesn't need a book. I, you know, I can understand that. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't read the book, and they're just going off the idea that everybody can become a master. Oh, that's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous. I find it's a kind of reverse elitism that exists in the world, where it's okay if you have a, a good job as a journalist, but you don't want to believe that everybody has that potential. Well, who are you to say that? What gives you this magical belief that only 1% of the population has the potential to be a master? Uh, there are many examples in the book of people who come from the worst circumstances. The writer Zora Neale Hurston, the first female uh, African-American writer to ever sell a book, really, essentially, came from the worst circumstances imaginable. There's no genetic component to mastery. Temple Grandin, who I've, I profile in the book, was born with autism. and She's a master. So if these people can achieve it, I do believe it is something that all of us have the potential for. Those are the, you know, the things that people will wonder about. But generally, the public is very receptive and has received the book very well. It is said that the 48 Laws of Power sold over 1.2 million copies just in the United States alone. Yeah. The Art of Seduction, I wonder if people know about it. Because I know a lot of people got drawn to the 48 Laws of Power, the 33 Strategies of War, and the 50th Law that you wrote with 50 Cent. But I'm wondering if the Art of Seduction, if it's been really promoted yet. Oh, well, the Art of Seduction came out in 2001, and uh, it sold well over 600,000. It's my second best-selling book. Fantastic. So it's done uh, very well, and it continues to sell. A book on power, I suppose, in the kind of more male-oriented world that we live in, is going to sell more. Uh, It's also been out longer, but... Seduction, which was maybe my favorite book to write, has done very well. And will be my favorite interview with you when we get to it. Okay. I have to read the whole thing. You know I read the books cover to cover, so... Okay, that's good. We'll have a two-hour on that one. Sure, I'd love to. (laughs) I may even do that in person with you, for God's sake. Okay, Um, that'd be be exciting. (laughs) Is there anything else you wanted to share that we haven't covered about your book? Well, I'm fascinated by the idea of a kind of intelligence that we humans can reach that nobody really discusses out there. We're such a intellectual, analytical culture. I know that doesn't sound, may sound right, but in fact it's true. Everything's quantified and statistic-oriented, and we really venerate people who get this degree, and et cetera. But in fact, there's a form of intelligence that's not necessarily intellectual that people have when they've practiced something for 10, 20, 30 years. They have a feel for it. They have, in German, the Fingerspitzengefühl, that fingertip feel. I call it high-level intuition, where you know something so well that the chessboard, the piano keyboard, the boxing ring, writing of the books, It's at your fingertips. You've done it so long that it's wired into your nervous system, and you don't have to think, and ideas come to you, and you're on another level. And it's it's almost like an animal's instinct, but it's intuition, and it's based on years of experience and practice. Malcolm Gladwell kind of discussed it in his book Blink and a little bit in Outliers, but this is what I wanted to do in Master. I wanted to show you that the end point is this level of creativity and this intuitive feel for something. And I'm going to try and describe to you how that comes about in as scientific a manner as possible, why we are able to think in this intuitive fashion at that point, and describe to you in such detail that your mouth will be watering because you'll want to get there at that point. You'll want to be like Bobby Fischer, who can see the whole game that he's playing 20, 30, 50 moves into the future. You're going to want to be that pianist who knows the music so well you don't have to think anymore. That's sort of what the book is about. It's not some kind of magic that makes an Einstein. It's something very human you can reach, and these are the powers that you can have if you follow this process all the way. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. You're a lot of fun. Your books are so interesting and obviously take you a lot of time to put together. Your books are not short. Your books are like three, 400-page books and small print, by the way. So that means you've done years of work on something before it ends up in a book. The packaging is beautiful, by the way. Oh, thank you very, very much. Very beautiful. Thank you. For those of you who are interested in picking up the book on Mastery, 
Um, you can get that at Amazon or you can go to powerseductionandwar.com and find out about Robert Greene's blog and the rest of his books. And Robert, is there anything else we should direct them to? I think you've got it covered. Amazon and Power, Seduction and War. The and in and war is spelled out. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you for writing this book that's so dear to me on mastery. And I'm going to hold you to the promise of our conversation about seduction. Most definitely. Well, when you finish the book, you let me know. You bet. And we'll, we'll schedule. You bet. I look forward to that. It's rainmaking time. Thank you so much, Robert Green. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kim. My pleasure. 